one of the most wonderful things about teaching St. Thomas um, has been the, um, really I've seen, uh, and not only myself, but other professors have seen the um, uh, tremendous work and the conversion that the students take when learn learning St. Thomas. And I really hope that uh, the Catholic uh, universities go back to that uh, teaching. I'm very happy here because I imagine your department is Thomistic. And so uh, the power of St. Thomas is absolutely phenomenal. And I'll talk about that tonight <clears throat> and give you a little bit of background on it. When I was a, I was a young man, I, it's a, lot, a lot of this is in my book, if you get it, and if any of you have it, I'll be glad to sign um, copies for you. When I was at the University of Detroit, that was before it was called University of Detroit Mercy, and they combined it, uh, I had uh, very fortunate to have, uh, at that time, the Jesuits made all of us, uh, and hopefully, take 18 hours of philosophy. It was all Thomistic. And uh, I went on, of course, to take much more. And now I also majored in economics. And so I noticed, and, and this is the topic of my talk tonight, St. Thomas and the Austrian schools of e economics, I noticed that there was a relationship between the two. That if we talk about the Austrian school, it is a, um, it's not that well known a school, but as you'll see, very, and I will tell you this, very accurate in its economic predictions. Uh, and extremely accurate in this diagnosis of the present condition. But as I, I was studying St. Thomas, and I was very fortunate to have a Dr. Hoffman, who probably would be the, the arch uh, uh, example of the Catholic gentleman, and who taught actually till he was 91 years old. Uh, and he would, even in, the, even in the secular schools that he taught, he would give the test and then he'd be going through all of his prayers and the rosary at the same time. So very much of a Catholic gentleman and uh, certainly uh, taught a lot of us. But I noticed that there was a relationship between the uh, Austrians and, the, and uh, Aristotle and St. Thomas. When I read Mises' book, uh, Human Action, the premises on human action that Mises based it were the same premises I was studying in the philosophy of man uh, which we used to call rational psychology, the same thing was there. I saw the same pattern repeating and repeating. And one of the things I want to stress tonight is that re repetition of that pattern between the two schools. Uh, Austrians have been in for a lot of criticism uh, from all sorts of angles, but I, I don't think people have really read them or understand them. So when, I, when we talk about it, we say, well, where did the Austrian school come from? Okay, what is its roots? Well, really, it, it goes back to Aristotle, okay? And the roots of the Austrian school are really Aristotelian. If you read Aristotle and then you read the Austrians, you can see the, the pattern, the flow. Most economics today is not coming from um, Aristotle. It's basically coming from nominalism. Um, and then, of course, the heavy mathematics uh, that was put in in England and British empiricism. The Austrians are different than that. And so we go from Aristotle to St. Thomas Aquinas. And um, Aquinas, and I'll talk about some of the uh, similarities between the two. And then, remember, Thomas died about 1274. Uh, his work was taken up by the Spaniards. The School of Salamanca uh, had tremendous influence in Spain. And uh, of course, one of the, uh, one of the last uh, devotees of the School of Salamanca was a fellow by the name of Lessius. Uh, Lessius like me, was of Belgian descent, and I always, I always joke with my Irish friends, since it's uh, St. Patrick's Day, both Belgium and Ireland have a relationship. We both were conquered peoples for the most of our history, okay? The difference was is that the Belgians held the mortgages, okay? <laughs> the Belgians actually ran the, uh, the, Flem the Flemish, actually ran the Spanish Empire, the economics of the Spanish Empire, which is ran, run from Antwerp. And they, they all were always good. And Lessius, by the way, was the first fellow, actually before Adam Smith, to write a, um, a work on economics. And his family was, uh, was in the uh, commercial business. They, were in the, the, uh, they did international trade and whatever else in Antwerp. So he had a, a really good insight into what was going on with bills of trade and international trade, balances of payments, et cetera. And it was from Lessius that even Adam Smith and a number of others wrote. Now, what happened 
from the School of Salamanca. I'm going through this rather relatively quickly. Murray Rothbard does a magnificent job of tracing this through the scholastics. And uh, Murray, who was not a Catholic, unfortunately, um, was almost ready to convert because of his studies in the scholastic school and how the scholastic school really contributed. And if you, you have a chance to read this two-volume work, he will do that. Also, Schumpeter, Joseph Schumpeter, a member of the Austrian school, at the Mount Pelerin at one a meeting, uh, said uh, in his first book, he said, modern economics, in the book, um, The History of Economic Analysis, modern economics comes from the scholastics. And Hayek, when he was at a meeting of the Balpeleron Society, took them to, to Salamanca, and he said, this didn't begin in Scotland. This began here at Salamanca. And if you read the, the, the writings of Salamanca, you'll see how they prefigured, in a lot of ways, the Austrian school. What happened then, it, it moved, in a sense, uh, to uh, uh, Vienna. Vienna, remember, a Catholic empire, a Habsburg empire. Um, unfortunately, sometimes the Habsburgs were not as supportive of the church as they should have been, but at least they were a, a Catholic monarchy. And Franz Bretano was the priest who really was a Thomas priest who taught uh, in the University of Vienna and prefigured and was a good friend or became a devotee from Karl Menger. And Karl von Menger, all these Notice all these fellows have a font in front of their name. I, I think maybe we should convince the Ludwig von Mises Institute to have one of the Habsburg come over and give all of us with Austrians fonts, okay? Or, you know, von so-and-so. Von Verizer sounds always very good, okay? Anyway, uh, Menger uh, graduated from Jagiellonian University in Poland with his doctorate, and then he started to work in the Vienna Stock Exchange. And what he noticed was, is the way prices were formed and investment happened was entirely different than what was in the economic textbooks. He said the economic textbooks do not explain how prices are formed on marketplaces and how individuals come together to do investments and et cetera. And he, he began to understand, and he was really the father of what we call the knowledge revolution. I mean, Manger was the first one who really said, look, Adam Smith was right on the division of labor. It does increase skill, it does save time, it does improve capital, but he says so Adam Smith is missing something, and that was the whole concept of human knowledge and technology. Okay, so in a sense, we could say Menger understood the nature of the technological revolution that was coming. And he talked about individual action. He developed a theory of money, a theory of trade, of price setting, and the beginnings of a theory of capital and investment. His colleague, Eugen von, if I can pronounce this right, von Wien Bavark, okay, took Menger's insights and applied them to capital theory. And uh, he then started talking about capital theory, and von Wien Bavark, pronounce it right, uh, actually was the first one to write a refutation of Karl Marx. Now, there's a long history of, of clashes between the Austrians and the Marxists. And what Bim Balwark said is Marx did not understand the whole concept of value and risk. He said Marx did not understand that the, that the entrepreneur, when he starts a business, is taking on the risk, and he pays the workers first, you see, before he even sells the product. And he uses this insight to do what? To refute Marx. And there was a tremendous battle going on between the Marxists, which we'll later get into, and much more in the metaphysics. His associate, von Wieser, who had toyed a little bit with socialism, began to develop the whole concept of opportunity cost. And it was from von Wieser that Hayek will take his famous idea of, uh, or that Menger, uh, both Hayek and Mises will take their famous refutation of socialism. Now, both of these men, and this is very, very important, and this is where the Austrians and the Thomists agree, is their anthropology. Okay? The, the idea of what and who and the destiny of man is very important. And the anthropology of man is very important. In other words, how you view the human person clicks in with your politics and clicks in with your economics. Okay? And Mises, an agnostic, 
in his book Human Action, writes about the nature of man, and he said we must assume, and he didn't use St. Thomas's name, but he listed all the Thomistic principles that man has free will, and that man is significantly different than the material world. Now that's a very important step, okay? that man is significantly different than the material world. Because remember what was happening at the time. You had the, the recadescence of materialism. And what was preached in Europe was what? Man was a product of evolution. Man was nothing but material. And therefore, as material, he was no different than the world around him. And Mises now, an agnostic, said, no, wait a minute. This will not work. We have to assume St. Thomas is right to make the economy work. He said, we can't prove it. He was not a philosopher. But he said, we have to assume the basic substrata of Aristotle and St. Thomas, that man is different, has a free will, and has a free intellect. This is extremely important in the Austrians, because both, the, um, they, both Hayek and Mises will write a lot of work on positivism. Okay, now let me explain about positivism. Positivism is the attempt to inject or to tailor, or however you want to put it, the social and moral sciences like physics. Okay, remember August Comte came out with the famous positivist thing, and what we're going to do is we're going to have equations, and we're going to figure all this thing as if human beings were what? Part of the material world, and there's no spiritual soul. So what they came into, they came into economics, and they said, what? Positivism. We have to have it like physics. I often ask my students, when I start teaching economics, how many of you had economics before? Two-thirds of the class, hands go up. How many of you hated it? Most of the hands go back up. I said, what, why didn't you like it? They said, well, it was just a bunch of graphs and charts. We didn't remember anything, you see? And the Austrian theory is different than a whole bunch of graphs and charts because that is the influence of positivism. The idea that you can, what? That you can use equations to predict human nature. And so both Hayek and Mises and all the Austrians have a long history of rejecting positivism because they believe that human nature was what? Substantially different, okay? That there was a radical difference between man and the, and the physical environment around them. Now this acceptance of positivism led to two twin disasters, okay? The first thing was the attempt to put biology into the moral sciences, okay? Now remember, I talked about physics. Now they want to put biology into the moral sciences. And uh, that led to World War I. And it's very interesting in Mises' book, um, and uh, I'll quote it to you, and also a Catholic historian by the name of Carlton, uh, Carlton Hayes, who said the same thing. Mises said this in 1922. Hayes, which is a fabulous book for those of you in history, and all you should get, you should get both of them, mentions this and, the, and actually goes through the whole ideological content of what happened in Europe from about 1871, which prepared the minds to conduct World War I. Okay? Now here's what Mises says, a very interesting quote. Uh, there's two of them here, so I'll, I'll get both of them. And it's very interesting. I had a, a young man who was an atheist, and he said to me, he was talking about that, and I told him about how Darwinism prepared the, uh, the way for World War I. He didn't believe me, so I said, here, read the, read the quote yourself and see what you think. Okay, now Mises wrote this, he wrote a couple things. He said, um, he says, society is the union, the member, he says, talk the Malthusian theory, and then he goes out about the core liberal social theory is the division of labor. Only side by side with this can uh, make along the, the social conditions. He says, society is the union of human beings for the better exploitation of the natural conditions of existence. And its very conception abolishes the struggle between human beings and substitutes mutual aid, which provides the essential motives of all members in society united in, in an organism. In other words, mutual aid, the division of labor, is we're all interdependent on one another. Notice there are two major theories about society. One is society is conflict. We are in perpetual conflict with one another. 
the Marxist class struggle. And it's gotten into all kinds of things, right? Men and women fighting one another, children and parents, right? You had this, these characters coming out uh, who are applying Marxism all over. There was this irreducible conflict. He says, um, now Mises, within the limits of society, there is no struggle, only peace. Every struggle suspends and affect the social community. Society as a whole, as an organism, does, not, does fight for a struggle of existence against the forces inimical to it. But inside, as far as society is absorbed into others completely, there's only collaboration. In other words, Mises now is coming out and saying what? That the best basic metaphysics of society is not conflict, but harmony of interest. Now, you're either going to take one or the other. Either we're conflict or we're harmony of interest. Okay? And any of you who go down to Washington can see all these interest groups down there fighting for pieces of your income. <laughs> all right? They're all fighting what? The fight that goes on. And then he talks about, he says this. He says, when the formulas of Darwinism, now remember, this is a agnostic talking, which sprung from the ideas taken from biology into social science, reverted to social science, people forgot what the ideas meant. There arose a monstrosity, sociological Darwinism, which ending in a romantic glorification of war and murder was particularly responsible for the overshadowing of liberal ideas and for creating the mental atmosphere which led to the world war, that was World War I, and the social struggles of today. Okay, that's the agnostic. Now, what does the Catholic say? Okay, Carlton Hayes. I would really, uh, uh, this is a very difficult book to get a hold of, okay? Uh, but it is, I would say this is well worth, worth getting a hold of because he explains this issue. Indeed, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to account for the immense vogue of sociological and philosophical Darwinism were it not for this particular spectacular series of national wars, which from 1859 to 1871 accompanied its rise and eventually seemed to attest the truth. However apologetic Spencer may be about the horrors of modern warfare, many intellectuals in Germany, Italy, and the northern states of the American Union can now be satisfied scientifically that the latest wars have been necessary struggles for existence and had issued in the survival of the fittest and the best what truer doctrine of the pragmatic. And he's talking about what? Once you accept the concept of the struggle, and you accept social Darwinism. You're accepting what? A struggle in society for the survival of the fittest. And that, as, as Mises points out, and as Carlton Hayes, the Catholic, points out, leads to war. And I would say this, Hayes does a superb job of tracing this thing in the thoughts. So when we talk about it, we say there's the rise of positivism, which was rejected by the Austrian economists, which led to this tremendous struggle, World War I. And I have to mention to you that as an economist, I've often said, we economists have been trying to solve World War I for 100 years. I mean, Keynes tried to solve it. All of us tried to solve it. It's insolvable, OK? It, it was the, the major event that happened in Western civilization that has led to the problems that we have today. Almost every single problem from the Mideast uh, to what we have today is all coming from the, the stupidity that came out of World War I. And I mentioned this in my book. I compare the Congress of Vienna uh, and the um, Versailles Treaty. And it mentions in there how the Italians insisted that the Vatican have no part of World War I. Benedict XV, had we listened to him at the Christmas truce, we would have a much better and safer world today. Now, the second disaster, which you guys are living through, is the misapplication of physics to economics. These guys thought, and there's a wonderful movie out that you should see called The Trillion Dollar Bet. I show it to all my classes. The Trillion Dollar Bet. It's the story of long-term capital management. And here they had all these guys with, with um, Nobel Prizes in mathematics and in economics, and they all got together and they said, we can figure this whole thing out. We can figure the whole financial system out, and we can eliminate risk. Okay? Okay, now if anybody tells you that, throw them out. Because there is no such thing as eliminating risk. The risk is part of human, the human condition. Okay? And so what happened in the present financial crisis? 
these characters started with all these equations and all the rest of it. These physicists went to Wall Street and they sold, they sold the financial system. And there's all kinds of books. I mean, I'd be glad to give you a whole bibliography on it. There's about the Black Swan is one of them. Um, Fragility, anti-fragility is another one written by Taleb. Uh, Quants, there's an author who wrote that. The best one is, is The uh, Alchemy of Loss, uh, which has just been published. Superbly traces it. And I'll give an example of that. When I was teaching at Walsh College, I was chairman of the finance department, and we were an Austrian department. Um, the dean, we got a new dean. Always be careful when you get a new dean. All right, you, those of you who are not in the academy yet will learn that. Okay, and he presented himself as an Austrian. We hired him. Big mistake. Okay, and he called me one day and he says, "You know, you're not teaching financial engineering to the students." I said, "Well, Rod, tell me about this financial engineering." It's the first time I heard. I've been teaching, you know, finance for 20 years. I didn't hear about what this financial engineering is. He said, "Well, he says we got this method by highly statistical methods. This is 2005." And we take all these mortgages and we put them together and we sell them as AAA rated bots. And I said, Rod, I said, all you're going to do is cheat a lot of little old ladies out of their money. Now, there is no statistical method that, that eliminates risk. That's silly. And he went on and on about all these equations, so chastic calculus, and it was like a, it was an alchemy. It's really alchemy. Okay, and uh, I think that that's why the book, The Alchemy of Loss, really nails it. I mean, these two guys do a great job. And uh, so, 2005. And he said, I have letters that companies won't hire our, our students because they haven't had this kind of alchemy. Well, guess what? 2007, the wheels came off the buggy. Okay, the companies that would not hire my students are now bankrupt. And a lot of little old ladies and a lot of other people have lost thousands of millions, trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars lost because they, it was like an enabler. You know, if any of you are, uh, understand alcoholism, you understand if you have an alcoholic, you just don't have an alcoholic. You've got a whole system of enablers. I mean, if there's a person who's a drunk, he's going to have a whole bunch of people enabling that to happen. This mathematics became an enabler to Wall Street to take risks they shouldn't have taken. Now let me ask you this. If you really if I came in here and I said, you know, guys, I got I got the super fire investment, you can't lose. You're not gonna lose anything. What would you do? You'd mortgage your house, you'd mortgage your car, you'd mortgage your kids, you'd mortgage everything and invest in it, right? Because you can't lose. And it became the enabler for these corporations to go out and get involved in these bonds based upon this mathematics. Okay? Based upon the mathematics. And it was a tremendous failure. The Austrians warned them before. This is, this is another disaster caused by positivism. It's a disaster caused by bringing the physical sciences into the social sciences, and it does not work. So we had the meltdown. And I'll probably, in, in the uh, discussion afterwards, we can go into more of the details of it. So what happened was, if we take a look at it, you had the Federal Reserve, I'll just go through it, pumping money into the system by lowering reserve requirements on real estate. Because remember, real estate can never go down, right? I mean, that was the thing. Investing in these bonds, which were backed up by these mortgages, it was kind of a complicated system, which, which absolutely couldn't fail. I mean, they just couldn't fail. The equations told them it couldn't fail. Okay? And when it, when it blew up, it really blew up. Because nobody knows who owns these mortgages today. One judge in Cleveland threw the case out. He says, I don't know who owns this stuff. Because it's all in the mathematical formula, all divided up, whatever else. Okay? Those were two of the things that caused it. Was the malinvestments, the Federal Reserve, and this is, by the way, Austrian theory, whenever the Federal Reserve cranks out money, it's going to create malinvestments, and those malinvestments are going to come back. And they did. Okay? And they did. Now, I remember telling my students, and there's, a, there's always an indication of when there's going to be a bust. And I can tell you how you can tell. When banks get on the radio and start advertising for you to borrow money, something's wrong. Because borrowing and lending is a very serious thing, and you shouldn't be on the radio promoting it. Okay. Number two, all right, another indication. So I came into my students, and 
heard this on the radio, and I said, you know, I'll tell you what, then. They want you to mortgage the equity in your house. There's an ATM machine. I said, I can't tell you guys doing that. I'm going back and changing your grade to an F. <laughs> <laughs> because you should know better than to mortgage everything based upon. I have one of my very good friends whose wife really holds me in high esteem because I got him, he mortgaged his house to put it in the stock market and was able to get him out of the market uh, in time. And so I'm, of course, a hero. Right? Because you knew what was going to happen was this thing, the wheels were going to come off the buggy. It was part of what happened. This isn't the first time this has happened in history. So um, to get through it, the Austrian theory of the business cycle was developed by um, Mises using Bimbarks and the rest of the Austrian theory. And Mises and Hayek actually predicted, it's in my book, I have the footnote, they actually predicted the downturn in 1929. Okay? And so, um, they had uh, enormous contribution, and most of us were able to see, and I can tell you that from my own experience, were able to see this mess coming, and uh, were able to get out. Okay, I sold my business in 2005, and then was out of the market by 2007, because you could see it coming. Okay, and in my book on the Austrian, and you go on the chapter on the trade cycle, which is the longest chapter, I go through the various steps. Now, the Austrians, in a sense, they start with individual human action. They believe that the primary uh, actors in the economy are not gross national product and all the rest of the statistics. They say the primary focus is what? Is the individual actor and how they respond and what happens when certain things are done by government. Now, the Austrian success, just to go through some of the success, um, was in Germany in 1948. Uh, any of you who you really should study the economic history, which was not taught to me in school, except uh, I learned it from Dr. Hoffman, but nobody else talked about it. Germany, as you know, was a wreck. Price controls, all kind of controls. Legacy of Bismarck, who, by the way, was uh, another not too happy character, who set the thing up. And I would warn you in this, be very cautious of this Bismarck in Washington. Because that Bismarck in the 1870s led to somebody else who was very unhappy in the 1930s to use the, 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 use the mechanism of the state which was placed in, in operation by Bismarck to put that thing in the proc, uh, and you all know who I mean, the, the guy with the mustache from wherever, Adolf Hitler. He just, he just used what was there. He didn't pass any new laws. Okay, now, so the Germans were living under this um, authoritarian regime wage and price controls, all kinds of controls on the economy, and an Austrian economist uh, by the name of Ludwig Erhard, who had been appointed by Conrad Adenauer, a good Catholic who took over Germany after the mess, and appointed Erhard uh, as the finance minister, and Erhard did what? Repealed the wage and price controls completely. One week I just got on the radio and said they're over, which very much upset the American occupiers who were listening to great economists from Harvard and Yale that said price controls work. Okay, I'm a little bit cynical about my competitors. Any of that, we uh, didn't catch that. All right, okay. And, and uh, put the mark on gold. The, gold. the mark became convertible to gold in Bretton Woods. And also um, uh, did what? Lowered taxes, lowered government. And by 1950, Germany was outproducing what it did under Hitler. And by 52, Germany was the economic engine of Europe, where it remains today. Okay, because what? They followed the Austrian school. So the Austrians have a, have a, um, um, a record of success. I might add that Poland does not have, did not have this boom and bust cycle, because their central banker, uh, I can't think of his name, but the central banker said, no, we're not going to inflate the currency. We're not going to create lots of credit. We're not going to go through this risk free investments, and we're going to follow Hayek, and Poland did not have the up and down cycle that, that we have today. The Austrians also, most of your micro is Austrian. Now, it was mathematicized in England by um, Alfred Marshall, but Marshall actually advised people, he said, look, you can do all this math stuff, but when you're done, burn the stuff, burn the mathematics, and he said that. It doesn't work, it doesn't work, and it misleads you. 
because there is no formula for getting rid of risk. Um, and so they contributed to modern theory, almost all the trade cycle theory and the rest of it is Austrian. They're accurate predictions. They accurately have predi predicted the trade cycle. Um, they accurately predicted the, the collapse of the socialist systems. Hayek, both Hayek and Mises said these are unworkable systems and eventually they will come to an end. It was an accurate prediction. Um, they accurately predicted the collapse of Bretton Woods because of the fact it wasn't a true gold standard and they, they uh, accurately predicted the concept of inflation and how inf uh, the welfare state would lead to inflation and lead to inflated currencies. They agree with, the Austrians agree with um, the Thomist on private property. If you read question 66, you will find St. Thomas to be an ardent defender of private property. Uh, subsidiarity. Subsidiarity, remember, was first put forth in the American Constitution in the Tenth Amendment. Okay, and I always say that the age of classical liberalism did not, belong, did not start in England. It started in the United States with the Northwest Ordinance. And the Northwest Ordinance proposed by Jefferson for the new states coming in accurately does what? Accurately puts down what Earhart did in Germany, et cetera. And then you have Pope Pius XI proposing subsidiarity as what? An extension of private property. And he's doing this because what is he facing? He's facing these totalitarian regimes. And if subsidiarity is a protection against that, because you don't have a centralized power directing things. And then Hayek wrote his famous essay on the, um, on the uh, uh, knowledge in society, use of knowledge in society, which really said the guys at the top don't really know what's going on. The knowledge really exists at the lower levels. Austrians are strong supporters of the family. Mises has a long chapter in here in which he says, and this is probably, if you see it, he says, free love and socialism go hand in hand. Now I would just suggest, if you don't think that's true, just look around at the present political situation, okay? And you will see exactly what's happening. They're promising this free love. They're strong supporters of the family. Mises in his work on the family um, could have been written by Russell Kirk. Talks about the special vocation of women and having children and the fact that we need it. And Hayek uh, comes out and he says what? He says, uh, he says, look, he said, any church social policy is effective if it endorses two things, strong families and private property. And remember, strong families and private property. And if we take a look at it, folks, Austrians, except for Rebke, Rebke's little out, out to lunch, I guess you'd say, on this thing. But they, notice, there is no population problem. Let me give you the statistics. You can check this out on your computers. You can check everything I'm saying out. Just get my book, you get the footnotes, and check them out. Okay? I'm a book salesman, too, I can tell you that. <laughs> any event, any event. For every person alive today, okay, or for every person alive in 1700, I misstated, there were there are eight people alive today. For every dollar of the world GDP in 1700, there's $100 today, which means that every person contributed at least six to seven times, maybe eight times, to the growth of the gross national product. And Hayek further goes on to say, in, in defense of this, he says, look, every single one of you is unique. And this is very interesting about the Austrians, because the Austrians don't look at the world is a mass, but they look at each one of you as unique, and each one of you has what? Each one of you has certain talents that cannot be duplicated, and therefore each one of you has a special contribution they can make to the world division of labor, and the statistics prove that out. Um, they believe that the family is the basic um, uh, unit of society, along with Aristotle and St. Thomas, there's a free price system, et cetera. And the very interesting thing is, and we've been accused a lot of this by some of the Catholic social policy people, of championing rational self-interest. Menger uh, absolutely denies rational self-interest. He says it's way, way too narrow to apply to an economic system or to a human system, and much broader, much broader. That, and he said Adam Smith and the utilitarians on that issue were wrong. That's in his book. 
So I'll, I'll finish up and, and with the questions. We'd be glad to answer any questions to you. But that's the connection between the Austrian school and the, um, and the Thomas. And I can tell you, we go into much more detail as you go into it. But the failure of positivism is a big one. The idea of human beings being separate from the material society. The concept of the contribution of each individual human being as being unique. It was very interesting when I talked to my uh, class. I said, look, each one of you is unique. There's not, there's not another one of you ever going to be or ever has been. And you have talents. I don't know what they are. And those talents will allow you to do things nobody else can do. And so when we talk about the Austrians, uh, they're probably the closest to the underlying fundamentals of what, and you're at a Catholic school, what Catholic social policy can be. So I'll be glad to open up for questions. I really appreciate coming here. Um, I know that all the drinks are there and everybody's ready to go. So, but I'll be glad to. <laughs> there any questions that anybody has? I, mean, I raised a lot. Of, yes, sir. Sure. Yeah, okay. Who called himself a man of 1789 mm -hmm. said that Jesus Christ was the worst thing to ever happen to human economics. Well, no, I'd like and to see the source on that. fomented hatred against the rich. I did criticize that, for sure. by thinking that love mm -hmm. was at the basis of... Look, I'm not... Okay. Look, I've, I've dealt with this issue. I'm not passing Mises off as a Catholic. Uh, no, but what I am saying is that he, he drew certain conclusions that are, that are accurate. And those conclusions are the same that has been endorsed by Catholics. Now, when you get two people coming from different directions, and they're both talking about what happened before World War I and criticizing materialism, okay, you, you have to look at the conclusions. Were they right? Was World War I, according to Carlton Hayes, a Catholic? And Mises, an outgrowth of Darwinism? Because, because Catholics and Mises both opposed Darwinism? They're the same I, I said they came to the same conclusion. I didn't say they're coming from the same premises. Okay? Uh, and, and what I'm saying to you is this, is that, look, if you've got, you got two doctors coming in, and one's a Catholic and one's an atheist, and they come to the same diagnosis of the disease, okay? you got to sit there and listen to them and say, no, wait a minute, maybe they're saying something here that's important. And because you don't agree with someone on one point, doesn't mean you don't agree with them on certain important points. Okay? And so I'm saying, wait a minute, I never said, I said Mises was an agnostic. Okay? And I pointed that out. And what's happening is, is that because he had criticism to the church, doesn't mean that his observation. Remember, he served in the trenches of World War I. He wrote it in 1922. He saw the rise of social Darwinism. He's criticizing social Darwinism, okay? Okay, now later, Carlton Hayes, a Catholic, who absolutely helped us out enormously in Spain, comes to the same conclusion. Am I to reject both of them? I mean, they're coming to the same conclusion. It's like a doctor telling me, well, you've got to have your appendix out, so I'm not interested in if you're an atheist or a practicing Catholic. You can't learn something from somebody who's not a Catholic or you know, agree with somebody who's not a Catholic sure. on a specific issue. I'm talking about fundamental understanding of what it means to be. Okay, now both of them. And that I think okay. conflating. No, I'm not inflating. Yeah. Now, you're bringing human freedom in, and that's different. I said that Mises said, I mean, you're bringing something in, sir, that's not in there. I said they both criticized the what? The looking at man as solely a material being. That's what I said, okay? Now, I've debated, look, I've debated these distributivists and all these people all over the place, and I asked them, have you read it? Well, no, okay. But you understand that? Do you understand they can come to the same conclusion? I mean, if you get my book, you're going to see I quote Keynes. I quote all kinds of people. 
because if they come to the correct conclusion, Keynes was a horrible person, but he said some things that were right, okay? And these people are saying some things that are right. Now, the, the opposition is, you want to continue to have these trade cycles and put people, you want to continue at inflation and put people into poverty? I mean, you know, you have to sit down and say, okay, how are we going to solve this problem? And I'm, I'm not prepared to watch the gross national product be flat like it's been for the last 30 years, since 1971, and all these people have no solution. And these guys got a solution. I've used it, it works. I'm not debating the trade cycle with you. Well, they're, they're Austrians, they're the only ones to talk about it. Well, why bring in... Because of the fact they're right on the trade cycle. And, and, and these other folks, do not have anything. And I mentioned that you're probably a fan of Belloc. Belloc believed in the gold standard. I mean, he believed in many of the fundamental propositions of it. Okay, if you read them, Economics for Helen is the source. Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you address why that is? Well, I think the, the, the reason is, is that they, I don't think that they quite understand um, the nature of what I call the principle of regressivity, regressivity. All right? It's very simple. Let's say gasoline goes to $20 a gallon, which it very well might. Okay? I mean, that's quite possible with this inflation. I never thought in 1971 it would go to $5 a gallon when it was 50 cents, but it did. Who's going to be hurt most? Bill Gates or the college student that's working to put their way through college? B Bill Gates loses more money than that in the sofa at night. Okay? What happens if gasoline falls to 50 cents a gallon? Who's going to be benefited? Who's going to be benefited is the college student who's working their way through college. So the principle of regressivity says any type of economic impact affects the poor most. Okay? Now, who is able to influence legislation in Washington? The rich, you see? So as you have an interventionist state and you have an inflated currency, the people who are going to get hurt worst are at the bottom of the scale. And if we take a look at the economic statistics, What's happened to the people at the, the bottom quintiles of the economy? They have not had any real growth since 1971. They had real growth before it, and we were on a gold standard. Okay? So, I mean, I have to look at the statistics, I have to look at the reality of it, and say, okay, what here works? Now, the more government you pile on, the higher drive the cost. Let me, let me just tell you this example, okay? Right now, this is I'm getting into the economy, 65% of the jobs are created by small business. Not big business, small guys. And they create almost all of the innovation. Now, today, small business is stalled. They can't get loans from banks. And why? Because of the fact that they lost $6 trillion worth of equity in their houses. I was in small business. I was in the metal stamping business for 27 years. How did I finance that business? I financed it by mortgaging my house or mortgaging my trust funds or whatever I had to do to get cash to run the business. Okay? That equity has disappeared because of this trade cycle, because of the inflation. Now, Greenspan made the decision to do it. Greenspan came out and he said, we're going to create this bubble and we can control it. And I said, look, look, I said, if you have a lion in the cage, and you, that lion's in the cage, you control it. You let that lion out of the cage, it controls you. And the problem is, trade cycles have certain principles of operation that when you release them, they're gonna cause problems, okay? You can't control a trade cycle. So now, the small businessman cannot hire people. And that's why our unemployment rate is really much higher than what they're saying. So we can't do that. So the economy is now stalled, okay? Plus, the regulatory disorder. Businessmen invest in the future on expectations. 
How do you know that this character in Washington is going to, um, is going to uh, change the regulations and put you out of business? Are you going to invest long term? There's $4 trillion, five times the size of the, um, of the budget, five times the size of the stimulus package. Stimulus was $800 billion. This is $4 trillion, five times. Where's that? That's being held in cash, either here or overseas. Why? Because of regulatory and tax uncertainty. Uh, I mentioned that you don't have a rule of law, which is a fundamental thing to make an economy work. Businesses won't invest. People are not going to get hired, and you're going to be stalled. Now, that's objective. Okay? That's not up in the air and somebody's social policy or whatever else, and we don't believe in this, whatever. That's objective. These statistics are objective. And we've been watching the standard of living of the Americans fall. I mean, look at how much you guys pay for college here. Well, $25,000 a year? 27000 a year, right? Okay, you know, since 1971, you know what the cost of college has done? It's gone up 10 times. What happened in 1971? We broke the gold standard, and we printed a pile of money. And we've been printing that money, and it's been going into college tuition, it's been pushing up college tuition, and it's putting you guys head over heels in debt. I graduated from college with how much debt? Zero. I was able to get jobs, and my father helped me a bit and worked my way through. All of my brothers and sisters, my dad went to ninth grade. All of my brothers and sisters were able to do that. Okay? Today, it's impossible. Okay? And I, I talked to my students, and I, when I went to U of D, they wanted me to come and teach economics, and I said, I'll do it in one condition. The tuition be half. So half tuition, I'm not going to be involved. And they did lower. Now we have a very competitive program. And I, I tell students, look, go to junior colleges, do this, do this, stay out of debt. Because here's the thing. You can lose your job. You can lose your house. Or your house, value your house goes down. You can't lose the mortgage. Okay? That's stuck. So, I mean, when we talk about this thing, these have real, real implications on that. And it's driving this country into increasing poverty. And people don't understand inflation. If you take a look at it, Who's getting wealthy? When you have inflation, the people at the front of the line get the money first. Okay. Front of the line get the money first. And then what happens? The people at the back of the line are stuck because these people invest in commodities and things that go up with the inflation and the others can't. Okay? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Um, I have a question that might possibly provide some resolution to Dr. Shen's questions. Isn't it the Austrians tend not to analyze ethical or moral concerns because what they say you can't predict or even ask the reason why every person is going to do something. Every person is yes. Why, why any given person would do something, you can't really say that. So to analyze economics more accurately, to provide a better model forecast, they analyze it somewhat more impartially, but mm -hmm. the, the accuracy that that gives them enables them to give better data for moral judgments on economics, and that is what opens up Austrian economics and makes a peculiar utility to a Catholic, to a moral philosopher. Sure. Because remember, prudence starts with the, prudence is judgment of the intellect. Mm -hmm. And you have to judge the circumstances you're in. Mm -hmm. Okay? So I'm not interested in, you know, that this economist did that. I mean, Keynes was a, a flaming homosexual. Mm -hmm. All right? <laughs> All right? And I mean, I've had a lot of people believe it. He was a flaming homosexual and a number of other things. But, he did say a few accurate things, and uh, I often ask my students, which Keynes? Because Keynes had every single position possible for the gold standard, against, for free trade, against it, whatever against it. So what I'm saying is that you have to have an accurate compass of what the reality is before you can make the moral judgment, and that is the, the, the uh, job of the virtue of prudence. Yes, I don't know, there's one other question I had. If you're talking about the gold standard, uh, what do you think of the high metallic standard? Is it like dollars and Sure. Pure silver and then gold values and silver dollars. Is that a better system than a well, one metal standard? I think the best system is highest competing currencies. Mm -hmm. Now, give an example of that. Yeah. I had a cousin in Chicago I met when I was a young fellow, and he had bought his life insurance policies in Swiss francs. Yeah. Okay? So I think Hayek's proposal 
because you can imagine he got twice his wife when he died, got twice as much as he would have had in dollars. Yeah. So I, the gold standard is a good thing. It would be much better, like Bretton Woods was much better than what we have now. But the gold standard can be broken by politicians, okay? And Hayek's worry was what politicians will do. And um, the, the uh, situation was is that I think that we should allow people to write contracts in whatever currency or system or whatever else they want. And the good, the, the um, stable currencies will drive out the bad because people will write contracts in good currencies. The interest rates on those loans will be less. The, com the countries and the companies that deal with them will have lower costs of operation. Okay? Now, let me just talk a little bit about cost. As a businessman, you know, you think, well, we'll put a dollar's worth of regulation on a company. Fine. That's not a dollar. That's three dollars. Because if you put a dollar's worth of cost on me, I gotta go out and sell three dollars worth of stuff to pay that. Okay? So one of the things that we have to do to get this economy out of the stall, besides straightening out the college loan problem and a lot of other things, and one of my Austrian uh, colleagues, Frank Vetter from University, Ohio State University, is just deaf on this thing, is that we have to somehow lower the break-even point. If you lower the break-even point of small business, all of a sudden, what happens? I don't have to sell as much stuff. Therefore, I can start hiring other people and starting the job picture going. And the most essential thing is to get people back into the job picture and, and have a stable currency. Those are essential. So I would say that on that, I think perhaps that would be the better system, Hayek system would be better. Okay, yes, sir? Uh, what about the, the, some of the vices that may come in after you've uh, developed some of these theories, such as usury, mm -hmm. things of that nature? Mm -hmm. um, how, how are these vices addressed after, <coughs> after these formulas, these economic formulas have been presented? Well, the thing is, is that if you take a look at uh, Belloc, I know Belloc spent a lot of time on this, and he divided well, it into, folks. yeah, I, I, and what he did is, but remember, you're also paying an inflation premium on your interest rates. You say you have three risks whenever you make a loan. Default, inflation, and the market risk that the interest rates will change, okay? Now, what happens is, is the economy starts to inflate and you start to build in inflationary expectations. Suddenly now, the, the uh, market rate of interest goes above what might be called the normal rate of profit. And if you take a look at Belloc's theory, okay, and he's saying, okay, well, there's going to be interest, there's going to be payment for capital, yeah. He says, if it's productive, right? If it's productive capital, it's okay. Not yours or his. So what I'm saying is, is that inflationary expectations will drive the interest rate into usurious positions because it, rise, it raises it above the normal rate of profit as people try to protect themselves against the inflation. Now, Belloc himself get, believed in the gold standard. No, right. Okay. But how does it get protected? What I'm saying is how, how do these people get protected then um, in this free market system? How do the people get protected from the usurious rates? Okay. A lady came off office last week. Well, okay. She had 11% on, on, on her simple home. Sure. And the, here's the thing, you don't under, uh, what a lot of people don't understand, you don't have a free market system when people can sell out there and print money. There's no free market system to that. I mean, how is the it a free market system? That. Pardon? The Austrians want that. Well, take a look at the situation on the gold standard. The, the interest rates fell in 1815 from 6% on, on uh, on bonds issued by the British government, which was the most safest thing of that, to 2% in World War, at the beginning of World War I. I mean, there was a constant fall in the interest rate, okay? It was only the wars and the inflation that brought that interest rate crazy. And there was a constant falling in the interest rate. So, I mean, the, the, if you take a look at the, at the reality of it, okay, you didn't have usurious interest rates at 2% because 2% is lower than the average rate of profit. Okay. Yes, Dr. Lucky. I just wanted you to comment on this a little bit. I think some of the confusion people have is, is that they reverse the whole thing. They think that the market uh, 
comes from theory first. No. But it's a descriptive science, economic descriptive, descriptive science. science yeah. And when you start off from human action, we're just telling you this is how people react to circumstances. We didn't make this up. So if you have a market that works freely, yeah. uh, you know, certain, certain legal prohibitions and stuff, mm -hmm. generally speaking, people get out of the dirt or environment that the whole universe had or the world had until you know, maybe the 1700s, right? And then they get to live a little better lives, lives mm -hmm. that are appropriate to their dignity. So what we're saying is, if you do this, you let people be creative and bring about their their potentialities. If you mess with that, it doesn't work, and people are worse off. Did you say that? Well, Doctor Lucky, I pointed out in my book there is no such thing as a free market or capitalistic system. It's what happens when you do the right things. And what are the right things? Rule of law, sound currency, protection of private property, freedom of contract, strong families, and subsidiarity. Now you do that, and you have a strong economy. Okay, and that's my argument. The Austrian, Austrian theory is not an imposed system. It's not coming from above. It's, it says what? Do the right things and prosperity happens. Okay? So I'm not saying that Austrianism is opposed to distributism. Distributism is a system that's imposed because you have this idea of distributing property, right? This is not, all it says is look, if you do the right things, this is what's gonna happen. So I mean, um, in a sense, Remember the, 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 the Hayek's subsidiarity and his idea of uh, knowledge, which added to the idea of it, um, says what? It's spontaneous order. Well, how do you get spontaneous order? You do the right things. The United States is an example of that. We did the right things, and by we went from being a, a ragtag colonial bunch of colonies to by 1850, we're the second, the second most powerful economy in the world. We had. We had people coming here in flocks because the economy was so good. Germany did the same thing, okay? Uh, now they had a welfare state with it, which caused other problems, but what we're saying is this is not a system that's imposed, it's a system that comes about. And number two is there isn't any such thing as free markets with, when you have inflated money coming in because that's an unnatural thing coming in. What's the natural thing? I make stuff and trade it to you and you make stuff and trade it to me. When you put money into an economy and you inflate that economy, it's unnatural because somebody's taking stuff out without putting stuff in. It's simple. Yeah. Uh, 1913, 100 years ago, uh, Harvard cost 50 bucks a year. Robert Nisbet was born that year. He said in 1913, the only contact that the average American had with the federal government was the post office. Mm -hmm. <laughs> World War I was a critical turning point. But There's no question. Well, 1913, you had the imposition. Sure. Mm -hmm. 1913, three things happened. You had the, the end of the Senate as an independent body. And remember, folks, I, I've been in politics. And, well, I was 10 years a district chairman, and I'll tell you, democracy is the rule of money. Okay? And by the way, uh, for those of you who are with Belloc, he quit the English Parliament. He was a member of the Liberal Party for two, year, uh, for two terms and quit the Parliament because he said the same thing. He said, it's a rule of mine. Okay, so what happens now is where a senator, a guy wanted to be a senator, just had to buy off 100 votes in the legislature. Now he's got to buy off a whole state. And how does he do that? Public largesse. The welfare state hands out goodies. Okay, and so how do you get elected? I mean, you folks ought to work a precinct someday. You go up and ask the average American voter. You know how the average American voter shakes hands? That's it. I go out to a door. Well, I will vote for candidate X. You know, he's running for such a. What's he going to do for me? Okay. My grandmother's last one. So I'll vote for him because he's good for the country. So that's number one. So the the conversion of the U.S. Senate from a House of States to this populist thing, this democracy, has been a disaster, number one. Number two, we put the federal income tax in. Now, a lot of people don't realize why the federal income tax was put in. It was to pay off the bondholders. Because you see, the bondholders, and this is very interesting if you study England. The English 
thing and is a real interesting thing. Everybody, a bond is what? It's a flow of income. I mean, you buy a bond, you're buying a flow of income, right? Because you get the percent every, every you clip the coupon, as they say. Now look, when you have a bond, okay, you have to have a flow of income to pay it off. So as the government's expanding, they realize that they're going to have to sell more bonds. They're going into debt. They need to have a mechanism to pay it off. Okay? Now, Belloc talks about the money power and the landed power in England, the shift. In fact, uh, Dr. Hickson and I were talking about this the other night. England had to go to war. What they did is they set up the Bank of England. The Bank of England would issue credits to the English government to go out and buy war material. And in order not to have inflation, what would they do? They would then l borrow the money back from the people to soak up the funds and issue a bond. And guess what? The bonds were payable by the British taxpayers. Okay? So the bond was good because the government of England could impose it on the British taxpayers. So the income tax was necessary. If you're going to expand the power of government, you're going to borrow money, you're going to issue bonds, what do you got to do? You've got to have a source of income. And then the final thing was the Federal Reserve, where you can create money out of thin air. And what was a nickel then, or what was a dollar then, it was a nickel now. Okay? And if any of you folks, look, I lived through inflation. I remember it in 1971. Okay? I remember when I paid two bits for a gallon of gasoline, and I was able to pay my college bills. And you have this Federal Reserve, and it's going to continue to do this. It's going to impoverish the American people like it's impoverished anybody anyplace else. And then World War I was able to be financed by this whole system. But in So when you start inflating the currency, you start destroying the savings of people, just like this trade cycle has destroyed. This trade cycle has destroyed those houses, the, 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 um, the uh, equity in housing, inflated it. Let me tell you what happened. I, I told my students, don't do this. The inflation pushed up the price of houses. Everybody thought, oh, I'm wealthy. So I'm gonna, you know how I can be wealthy? I'm going to borrow on my house because it went up. Then the problem is it's going to collapse, like all trade cycles do. And then suddenly, what's going to happen? You've got to pay that mortgage. And you lost your job. And you, then you lose your house. And then you have a whole downturn. So the Federal Reserve is absolutely responsible for that. Okay? And so we're going to, we're have, going to have continue that problem with that. Okay? You know, Dr. Hickson? Yeah, anomalism, there's no, there's no objective truth because there's no universals. And um, remember that, they, that the Dominicans and uh, the, them, uh, the number of them, wrote against the king doing what? Flipping coins. I mean, Henry VIII, if you like him, uh, not only to steal all the church land, but he, he created an inflation of 500%. He flipped the coins, okay? And so he was busy inflating the currency. And, and the church and, and the um, school of Salamanca came out and said, the king does it, it's a mortal sin. 
that King should not be clipping coins, and he, and he actually said this is a theft from the people. Because he says, and see, remember that the, the, the universalists, like we are, argues to the nature of things. You've got to argue to the nature. This is the nature of the thing. The nominalist says, well, maybe it can change. Maybe we can inflate this time, and it won't have that effect, and then we, we don't inflate that time, and it will have this effect and whatever else. There's certain things by the nature of things that, that cause problems and that destabilize economies by the nature of it. You print money, you're going to have a trade cycle. Okay? You, you print money and have a trade cycle, you're going to have usurious interest rates. Okay? Now, that's going to happen regardless who's in power because it's the nature of the thing that's caused. I think that's the, the point I'm trying to make. It isn't who said it, and okay, they were homosexual or whatever they were. We got to say, what is the nature of the thing we're talking about? And so the Austrians are saying, look, this is the nature of this problem. This is the nature of what happens when you inflate, you impoverish countries. Okay? This is the nature of what happens. And they can then go to the, the, uh, the history and say, well, look, we did this, and this is what happened. Okay? So um, the nominalism. Is what? Well, 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 maybe this time it won't happen. Statistically, you know, the statistical things, and I'll go into all the rest of that, and this time we got to figure it out, rather than arguing to the nature of things. And so I think that the disaster today is the nominalism of the economics. Anything else? Okay. Well, I'd like to uh, thank everybody for coming. I'd like to thank uh, Professor Verizer for being here. I think he's uh, given us a very stimulating